Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. House prices are crashing down in Australia with forecasts they'll have fallen by 20% from their peak by the end of this year in Sydney and possibly much beyond that. But houses are still hideously expensive. So what's the answer to housing affordability? We've got two questions from listeners that we'll look at today on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keane. I'm Phil Dobby. Welcome along. All right, Steve, we are going to combine two requests uh, for a podcast today. One from Peter Verhoeven, who says, rent control, a good idea. And another, also related to housing affordability, from Carl Giannarakis. Giannarakis. I think that's how you say it. It'll do anyway. Uh, change your name if, if I've got it wrong. Uh, how much harder is it for young Australian first home buyers today than it was for buyers who bought prior to the introduction of negative gearing? So, uh, look, you know, there are two questions we'll take on board, but let's look at, look at what's ha- happening in the housing market in Australia. Canada now as well is, is starting to move the same way. But first of all, um, Australia's just had a budget. Uh, negative gearing... Uh, has changed. It hasn't helped, has it, uh, in Australia? Because it's not the real cause of the housing bubble. That's surely down to low interest rates. And yet, here's the interesting thing. You know, Australia's got not got the lowest interest rates. There are countries with far lower interest rates that haven't got the same issue. So what makes Australia and Canada so different from those countries that have, you know, ridiculously low interest rates? Oh, dear. Now you're back when you're getting me saying my favourite word again, debt. Yeah. I knew we'd get onto it pretty quickly, but I mean, but, but but that debt is encouraged, isn't it, by the fact that you're not having to pay, you know, high interest on that debt. That's, so that's what that's ranks up the debt. So why yeah, wouldn't that happen everywhere where you've got low interest rates? Uh, because it isn't low interest rates alone that are the story. What what actually is the story is is that the positive feedback and the, this, this is using engineering term, but the positive feedback can be a bad thing. In fact, normally is a bad thing. Positive feedback between. Uh, the the level of house prices and the level of new mortgages. And that is what causes a bubble and drives up house prices. And that's what's driven rising house prices in Australia. And things like negative gearing have simply kept that uh, positive feedback loop going longer than it's going to continue going in other countries, such as obviously America and then before that, Japan. But I would have thought disposable income would have something to do with this as well. So if you've got wage, because wages are quite high in Australia compared to lots of other places, lots of costs are lower, except for housing, of course. You know, you pay less for petrol. Uh, you know, you can, aside from housing, well, it used to be the case anyway, that living in Australia wasn't terribly expensive. Uh, and, you know, so you had a bigger disposable income. So more people would put more money into housing because what else to, would they do with that? But that would mean the U.S., has the most unaffordable housing, and it doesn't because for some reason that's not happening there. They've got high wages, but house prices haven't risen. Well, it's really because the, uh, to a large degree, the amount of money you've got uh, from your income has is trivial 
uh, as a factor in determining house prices. And mm. this is the problem. What really helps determine house prices is how much mortgage debt you're willing to take on. And if you think about, uh, if you go back to the 1950s and 60s, I actually, I'm currently writing a piece which is taking you back to that wonderful uh, Frank Capra movie with Jimmy Stewart, It's a Wonderful Life. You remember that one? No. You keep, ah. you, you keep on assuming we're the same age. We're not. Oh, do you? Because you, you're young and aren't you? Okay. <laughs> it did come out before I was born, but it, 1940, it came out in 1946, actually. Uh, but it's, it's a story of a, effectively a guy managing a savings and loans institution at the time. But back in those days, um, back in my day, as my father would say, uh, and I've been forced to say that too, uh, if you wanted to get a house loan, you had to have a 30% deposit. Yeah. Now, even so, if you have a 30% deposit- And, th- and then the rest of it would be three times your, or two and a half times probably yeah. your income. Yeah, yeah. What, you, what you've got is, you, you've got, but you, the thing is you're buying, 70% of what you're buying the house with is mortgage debt. 30% is your own savings. Yeah. Now, what's happened over time is that 30% targets, oh, that's too high. Let's reduce it. Let's make it 25. Let's make it 20. Let's make it 15. Make it 10. Let's make it five. Let's make it zero. Let's give you 1.2 times as much money as it actually takes to buy the house. Yeah. So you can well, buy the furniture. Yeah, 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 and you know, send the mother-in-law on a holiday. Um, so this, this, this is the that that rising amount of mortgage debt over time has been allowed by deregulation of the financial sector, uh, but it's amplified what already existed, which was that the, the predominant factor in determining the level of house prices is the level of new mortgage debt. And as the level of new mortgage debt rose, because we accepted a, a higher loan devaluation ratio over time, uh, and we had this feedback process as well, you drove up house prices. But to keep it happening, the rate of change of new mortgages had to be positive. And that's that's where you start getting rather rather tricky. Uh, what it means is that I've done the mathematical argument. This is the one I actually mentioned to work with Paul Ormeron some time ago. Though I provided the maths. He provided the, he and a colleague provided the statistics. I've got to come back with the literature survey to finish the bloody paper. Uh, but what we looked at was the argument that if you look at the flow of demand and flow of supply for housing, you can explain house prices using supply and demand. However, it's not the static equilibrium nonsense that neoclassicals do. Uh, you look at what is the flow of supply. The flow of supply is fundamentally some fraction of the existing housing stock is turned over every year. And that fraction can, you know, part of it's, you know, people get divorced, house has to be sold. People move, house has to be sold. Uh, people have more kids, house has to be sold, that sort of stuff. Uh, so partly social, uh, but also speculators border property uh, wants, to, wants to offload and realise a profit, that's an economic factor. So there's this proportion of existing houses being sold plus net new creation of housing. That's your flow of supply per year. Now, that's pretty rigid because, the, first of all, the, the uh, fraction that's sold can rise or fall for different reasons over the economic cycle. So it, it, you can actually have an increase in houses being produced but a decline in how many are being sold of the existing stock. So that's... Yep. You can retreat supply, therefore, as, as neoclassical say, fairly rigid. But what's the demand side? In, in now, because I'm working on one side, I've got the physical s- flow of supply of new houses onto the market per year. I've got to convert the monetary demand into a physical demand. So you take what's the fundamental monetary su- driver of supply, the driver of demand for housing, it's new mortgages. Yeah. So it's availability okay. of credit. 
Yeah. yeah. Well, you, we're beginning with the price argument. You divide the chain, you divide new mortgages by the price level. That is your flow of flow of demand per year. And what you've got, and this there's mathematics behind it, but it's pretty easy to go from that point. If you say that the level of house prices is affected by the level of new mortgages, then the change in house prices is affected by the change in new mortgages. And that's turned out to be what's called the the, the uh, credit accelerator, uh, the mortgage accelerator. And that has been strongly empirically verified using American data, using Japanese data, Australian data, et cetera, et cetera. It's overwhelmingly the case that there's a positive relationship between the change in mortgage, new mortgages and the change in house prices. That's been so accelerated that's then, hasn't it, by the rent that, market yeah. as well, uh, because investors, people are, people are using housing as a speculative investment. If they, if they can get the credit available, um, and obviously there's some people who will and others who won't, those who can uh, get more credit than the cost of a house will say, well, okay, we're going to get two houses. Uh, and so that pushes up the demand even further. And I, that is a big chunk of the market in Australia. And I think, you know, is it like almost half, I think, isn't it, of, of credit is now going to, uh, it was at some point, going to people who were um, investing in houses rather than buying houses for their own purpose. So if that exactly. didn't happen, house prices presumably would be cheaper because there would be less of that demand being created. Yep. I mean, all, what you have is a, a whole range of policies that have been designed with, a, with the intention of making it easier for buyers to buy houses that have actually made it easier to drive up the house prices over time. So negative gearing encourages so-called investors. I prefer the term that uh, macro business users in Australia describe them as speculators, speculators, but they call them speculators. Um, that's added to demand. That's driven up house prices even further. Uh, they give a first home, what the, what the government calls a first home owner's grant. I call it a first home vendor's grant because yep. they give us a, a little amount of money to the uh, to the person buying their first home. They then take that as part of their deposit to buy a house, fact it up, leave it up by a factor of 10 or 20, and the money goes to the vendor, the price rises yeah. Rather than the so, all these things have been done supposedly to make and not just in, and not just in Australia, in other parts of the world as well. In the UK, the yeah. government's tried various measures to try and make it easier for people to buy their first home, and the same argument applies that all it's doing is pushing up the price of those first exactly, homes. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Australia has been more successful at doing it for longer, and that's why it's had a twenty-eight period of positive economic growth because it's been pumping up credit demand for that length of time. And when you look at the, the, the this is where it gets slightly tricky, but I'll I'll bring it down to a. a just the core, uh, because to have rising house prices, you need to have a rising level of new mortgages. That means that mortgage debt has to be not simply increasing, it's got to be increasing at a, a rising rate. So your total level of mortgage debt is accelerating over time. When you look at that acceleration in, credit, in, in mortgage debt uh, and say how much of it is a percentage of GDP over a long period of time, <coughs> pardon me, in Australia's case, it's been running at about half a percent of GDP per year for about twenty something years. Why does it? Ha- why does the? Why does the gradient have to increase? Why can't it just be increasing steadily? Oh, that's, a, that's a good question, and that's, that, that's come back to this acceleration thing. If new mortgages determine house prices, then change in new mortgages determines change in house prices. For change in house prices to be positive change in new mortgages also has to be positive. Change mm. in new mortgages is acceleration of the level of mortgage debt. So we have the, the level 
the rate of change and the acceleration. Right. <clears throat> and human human mind starts getting what I've Because you know, if we did so the answer the answer to my question is that if it didn't, if it if it if the if it was just a straight line up, then house prices would just increase with the rate of inflation. You wouldn't No, they they maybe even fall. Mm. Okay, so what you to to maintain rising house prices, you've got to have accelerating mortgage debt, and every time like the foot's been taken off the accelerator in the Australian market, the governments dive back in to put the foot on the accelerator again. So negative gearing was one part of it. Halving the rate of capital gains tax, which which Howard did, was another one again. Yeah, doubling and trebling. First of all, doubling, then trebling the house for the first time vendors uh, grant under Howard and then under Rudd. That's another thing they did. They've just kept the accelerator, the foot, you know, foot on the floor for all that time, and therefore the only way for it to continue is if you never break. So why has everyone done this in Australia? Why are people getting into the buy-to-rent market there? I mean, you'd assume it would be giving a, a better return than anything else and, and that Australia would be the place to buy that property. But it's it's not giving the best the positive return. positive feedback process in, in any any dynamic gives you a, a rising point and then breakdown. So if you imagine being at a rock concert and saying that somebody puts one of the microphones too close to the speakers, up goes the, the big, it really covers their ears and then the system crap crashes. And that's the house price bubble, house price burst. It's inevitable if you're relying upon an, an accelerating level of anything. And that's that's what we're relying upon, an accelerating level of mortgage debt. Uh, you get to a point where it can't accelerate anymore because people who are looking at buying, even if somebody's going to offer them like 120% of the purchase price of a property, so they don't need a deposit at all, they look about the amount of debt they've got to take on compared to their income, think, holy heck, hell, I've got to, I've got to agree to take on 10 or 15 times my income as a debt level to get a property, even if I don't save any money to begin it, I'm just not going to do it. Mm. So you get a point where that, that acceleration ceases. And once that acceleration in mortgage debt stops, then house prices start to fall. And that's the point that Australia has continued delaying uh, by all Until these now. various tricks. But it's now, it's hit, it's now hitting the brick wall. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I must, must say I'm – I'm enjoying and watching the Pithery brick wall because I, I, I was trying to warn well, so about it for so damn long. For so long, I know. And yet, you know, you talked about 40% drop so far from its peak in June 2017. The Sydney property market's fallen uh, almost 10%. If it carried on at the same rate for the rest of this year, it would be down 20%. Melbourne peaked in December 2017. It's down just 7% so far. Perth peaked in 2014. That's a while ago now, five years ago. It's only down 11% so far. So it's not 40%, but it could be 20% for Sydney. Is that is that enough or is that just the beginning? Is this going to go on? I think it's just the beginning. I mean, because again, you look at what's actually happened behind this. If you're going to maintain accelerating mortgage debt over time, then you have to have a rising ratio of debt to income. And that's what happened in Australia's case. So we have gone from having a, a level of mortgage debt compared to GDP, which is of the order of 30% back in uh, the 1950s and 60s, uh, to 120% now. And at that level of debt, uh, the people are no longer willing to take on the extra debt. You now have negative. You're going to go from having a positive acceleration to negative acceleration. So the credit accelerator for, for mortgages, the mortgage accelerator, is now negative. And since you have to have rising house prices and need a positive accelerator with falling ones. You've got a negative accelerator and that reverses all the various psychological things that make people want to buy a house. Now uh, you would have seen the initial 
um, the, the little um, acronym people are using about it, uh, they used to say FOMO was driving house prices, fear of missing out. Mm. Now it's FONGO, fear of not getting out. And in that situation, <laughs> people are thinking, oh, I've got to sell now rather than waiting. I'll take a lower offer than I would like to do because if I don't take it, I'll get a lower one even in the future. So, it's a, so are- it's a learning curve for Australia, isn't it? Because this isn't happening everywhere. I mean, it's we saw obviously we saw it with the subprime crisis in the United States, but the US doesn't have a housing crisis now. Australia does and Canada does. And, the, and, and as you're, you know, you've been saying, it's that availability of credits, the fact that banks are lending too much and people have had that fear of not uh, missing out, uh, of missing out, I should say. So it's it's a learning curve, and Australia's going through it right now, and it's going to there's going to be a lot of hurt as a result of it because it's going to bring the economy down with it. But it, surely you don't make the same mistake twice. America has. <laughs> well, I mean, America hasn't, has it? I mean, the fact that, you know, now uh, oh, mate, we're not mate, getting- mate, mate, mate. Oh, you're such an optimist. <laughs> don't well, make the same mistake. No, you make it five times. Well, look, let me send you. I got an email in the post the other day, right? Okay. Uh, and you can see the, the attraction that people might have towards property investment. This is an email from a property investment company in the United Kingdom. Over the last 10 years, buy to let has seen a 92% return. Only the FTSE 100 and classic cars have been a better investment. Investing in gold, cash or fine art uh, over the buy-to-let market 10 years ago would see you worse off now as a result. So that's good. The buy-to-let market is better than uh, buying fine art. Thank God I didn't get into the fine art market. But loving them in amongst all of that, only the FTSE 100 has given a better investment. Only only buying shares is a better investment than, uh, than housing. So, yeah, so invest in shares. Don't invest in the... Ponzi scheme of housing. That's a nonsense. Yeah, yeah I know, but that's typical. That's what you get all the damn time. And and, and the spookers continue pushing it uh, because, of course, they're making money out of all this. The ones who are the only people who succeed, who succeed, you know, gain out of rising house prices over time are leverage speculators who sell on the rising part of the market, real estate uh, spookers, and fundamentally also newspapers. Yeah, because they sell they, real estate ads. It's just about the only advertising they've got left. But doesn't the market correct itself eventually, like we're seeing in Australia? You know, so that so then you know new buyers will be able to get into the market. Uh, at, you know, assuming there is a housing collapse, uh, and it, yeah, as I say, it might you know mean that they don't have jobs because it's taking the economy down with it. But it, a, a bit of a reset happens. It's it just takes a long time. But isn't it self correcting? Unfortunately, it's self-correcting, but this is where this is where the accelerator issue comes in again. Because, and this is actually the, I, I logically worked out the argument for the credit accelerator one and a half decades ago. I must have been a bit of intellectual cowardice here. I didn't look at the empirical data because I didn't think the empirical data would be good enough to actually confirm the relationship. So I thought oh, if I look at it, I'll get an empirical relationship which says that there's no real relation, but I'll know it's actually the logic is correct, the data is wrong. I was wrong. The data had completely amplified my argument, and this was first done by a guy called Michael Beggs and a guy called Peck as well. And what they talked about was not just what causes house prices. They also called, they're called Phoenix Miracles. This is where house prices rise even when mortgage debt is falling. And... This is because when you've got an acceleration driving the change in house prices, you can be accelerating even while you're slowing down because you're slowing down more slowly, if you like. It's a negative, a double negative. Um, and so you, this is what has happened with Ireland, happened with America as well. House prices have started to rise even though mortgage levels are falling because they're falling more slowly than they used to. So this, this is... The complication, and what it means is that countries that 
you know, had a housing bubble and made the sensible move to get out of the housing bubble, uh, they are now seeing that house prices are rising once more. And my favourite example is Ireland, I'm afraid to say, uh, because I was in Ireland for the Kilkenny Festival last year. And, of course, Ireland had one of the biggest bubbles and busts in housing in, in human history. Uh, about a threefold rise in house prices in a decade and then a, almost a threefold fall on the other side. And there on the front page was the central bank governor in the island warning Ireland that house prices are not a one-way bet. So within, it was just five years after they'd halved. And here he was having to warn people that don't always rise. That, that's a sign of just how sick, um, how, how easy it is to make the same mistake again because acceleration fools us. And when the Reserve Bank of Australia says, okay, we need to do something about the fact that the Australian economy is slowing so much and it is because people are not spending because of mortgage debt, let's reduce interest rates. What impact will that have? Well, that also can encourage people back into the market because you reduce the, the debt servicing cost. Right. So, that, so they would see that as a good thing in terms of helping the economy, but it's kicking the can down the road. And that's exactly what the Reserve Bank has done in Australia. They they have and they allowed people to uh, uh, take on you know, more debt by having a lower interest rate. And but that squeezes you into like I, I did a, a bit of a, a mathematical um, vision of this and some very complicated charts I did back for the Centre for Economic uh, um, Centre for Economic Policy, I think it was called, um, in Australia back in 2008. So is it Centre for Economic Policy Development? The, that's the it, guys. thank yeah, you. Yeah. I forgot about them. Mm. Uh, on the vertical axis, I had the interest rate. On the horizontal, I had the debt-to-GDP ratio. And you can draw a rectangular hyperbola where somewhere anywhere along this curve, like from high interest rates but a low debt ratio, down to low interest rates and a high debt ratio, anywhere along that has the same debt servicing cost for the same percentage of your income over time. Now, what has happened is Australia has dropped the interest rate is that it's pushed us further into that lower corner, low interest rates, higher debt ratio, low interest rates, higher debt ratio. But at a certain point, you can't drive the interest rates for any lower. And that's the corner that Australia has negotiated its way into. But why just, I mean, a question I asked before, and you may give me the, exactly the same answer if I asked the same question. That's the Theresa May approach, isn't it? If that, <laughs> the, I mean, there are countries that have a much lower interest rate that haven't got this problem. They've already been through the bubble. Right. Like Japan is the classic no. Japan. So they've learned. So they have learned. Uh, no, they haven't learned. Um, they, 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 they had a, a peculiar demographic helping them out because they had, uh, as well as falling house prices, they had falling populations since 1990 as well. Mm. And with that falling population, yeah. so uh, there's, there's not the same demand. demand. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and that is the problem, of course, in Australia. There's so many people uh, who think, uh, "Look, we'll buy a house, we'll get a, a house, you know, the family home, and then when we get older, we'll sell the family home and buy something smaller for our retirement." And so it's it's their retirement plan as well. And the problem is, uh, you've got to have the population increasing all the time to keep on buying those bigger houses. The moment the population slows, which is what governments are trying to do, then when they retire, they're going to find there's no one there to buy those houses. And there's the other issue that I also um, come back to all the time, and that is that people don't buy houses. People with mortgages buy houses. So it isn't just the fact there's rising population. You've got to have rising capacity to take on debt and rising willingness to take on debt. And that also goes out the window when you start seeing falling prices, which, of course, is what we're seeing now. Okay, so the, one of these questions that we had uh, from Peter was uh, about uh, rent control. Is it a good idea? If you've got unaffordable housing, uh, is rent control a good idea? Adam Smith was in favour of them, wasn't he? Because uh, landlords don't do anything productive for the economy. 
but then, of course, there's the argument rent controls can create scarcity as well. Yeah, I mean, it's not a straightforward issue, but I'm, I'm in favour of rent controls uh, to some extent because I, I, I don't accept the neoclassical equilibrium argument about them, obviously. Um, but I do I, I understand that if you have something which reduces the desire to invest in, a, in something, you're likely to have less of it produced over time. So they are both there. One of the main issues actually is getting rid of the speculators. I'm, I want to have something which encourages investors and gets rid of speculators mm. because the investors build the new stock. The speculators gamble on the existing stock. And one actually fascinating point- Well, that's social housing think, then, really, isn't it? Yeah, well, they, you know, the old the old my old man's a dustman lives in a council flat. Yeah, uh, that was that was that restrained the extent to which private landlords could put up prices. Yeah, uh, and, and we've t- we talked about this because I mean, there's places yeah. like Singapore, obviously, where the vast majority of people actually are living in uh, in 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 public housing. But Asar Lindbeck, Lindbeck, I should say, he's a Swedish economy from the Stockholm School of Economic th- uh, Thinking. Another one that says rent controls appears to be. Well, his, in his words, the most efficient technique presently known to destroy a city, except for bombing. Uh, and, uh, and he gives Stockholm as an example because uh, there are rental controls there and there's a real shortage of accommodation. So that means migration is hard. There's ethnic segregation as a result of that. It's not a healthy picture for a city. Yeah, I mean that's that's why I've got, I've got some negatives on rent control as well. So, um, but but I but what I want to do is have like some way of, of reducing this thing which speculation drives up prices because there is speculative behaviour. And with in one part, people often say speculators help find prices. Speculators often help distort prices. And actually, a good friend of mine uh, is doing uh, has done some excellent research on the housing market in Australia. A guy called Carl Fitzgerald. And Carl is launching a report uh, in a short while. Uh, I think it's, it's when it's on, on April, next Tuesday. This is in Melbourne. Uh, what he called speculative vacancies because he realised he looked at the supply and demand issues about house pricing. The number of vacancies compared to the number of houses in existence just didn't add up. There was something missing. And he found something like about 25% of houses are held off the market by speculators to try to help drive the prices even higher because rent doesn't really matter to them. They're making money out of, out of, uh, out of rising uh, capital gains from rising house prices. And they're better off not even renting the houses. They're better off keeping them vacant. Yeah. So that sort of distortion, that's what- Even if they've got that far, they might have just bought the land and they're stockpiling the land to keep the land prices high before they even build on the- uh, that, on that, the that occurs as well. There is what they call mm. land banking. Yeah. So there are certainly issues on the supply side uh, with, with the rent control is the way to actually- address them, I am moderately sceptical. And in the Stockholm example, I can take to heart. So, but you certainly have to say, what can we do to increase the supply of rental properties for those who wish to rent? And in that case, one of the world's most successful capitalist nations, as you've mentioned, uh, has got the worked out public housing in Singapore. And even though you've got enormously high private house prices in Singapore, people can can live quite comfortably in quite a high quality uh, property they rent from the state. So the other question related to, you know, how much harder is it for somebody, for a young Australian, a first home buyer today, uh, prior to the introduction of negative gearing? Well, I think we've uh, we've said that, that comment from Carl. Um, it, it's, um, you know, that those people who bought prior to the introduction of negative gearing obviously got a better deal, but it wasn't the negative gearing. It was the combination of all the circumstances that we talked about today. But those first home buyers now in Australia or anywhere it's tough, isn't it? And they probably are going to have to accept the fact that they're going to have to rent. 
And uh, but rental prices need to be contained for that to happen. And the only way that can happen is if the government gets into the in, into the housing market in a big way. To some extent, it was also if house prices are falling now and therefore all those people who are, you know, land banking uh, or house banking, as you might call it, uh, to, to uh, not to give themselves the worry of having to, you know, kick the tenants out when they want to sell something. Uh, they're going to be forced, my God, I'm losing money. I've got to sell uh, or and I've got to get a cash flow now to service the debt I've currently got. So rents are falling in Australia right now as well and could fall, fall quite substantially. Um, so... Yeah, it, the, we, we have totally stuffed the, the housing market. And one one of Carl's little graphics that I really quite enjoy, I've put on one of my tweets, uh, is that we can put a man on the moon but not in a house. <laughs> so uh, I do recommend uh, following Carl on Twitter. His, uh, his uh, Twitter uh, name is Earth Sharing. So at Earth Sharing, all one word. Um, that'll give you Carl Fitzgerald stuff. And I anybody in Melbourne... Go along and go to the launch. It's it's quite an informative piece about how the supply side is manipulated as well as the demand side in Australia. Right, Australia does also have the problem. Um, I don't know whether this is uh, backed up by numbers, but just observationally, you have to live in Sydney and Melbourne by and large, don't you, if you want to have a job? And so you, so everybody is, you know, pitching for the same housing for the same limited supply, whereas. In the UK, you know, you can work in London or you can work in – you might probably have to work in the southeast for, for the vast majority of jobs, but at least it's at least it's reasonably dissipated. You know, there's places like Reading and, uh, you know, the Thames Valley, uh, you know, or, or Birmingham or, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the innovative belt that's uh, between Oxford and Cambridge now. You know, so there's – it's, you know, it's a more spread out – uh, housing market, whereas it's very concentrated in Sydney and Melbourne. So that keeps prices high. Absolutely. That's another issue as well. But also it means when the demand disappears, it's also going to keep the, the, the plunge going on for longer. So we've all with China, we're tied up with the China market as well. Uh, it's because you know, a lot of buyers in China were doing buying for two reasons. One is to get away from the Communist Party in case things stuff up there. And I have personal friends in that situation back in Australia. Uh, the other is to speculate on a rising market because, Believe me, Chinese people like a gamble. Mm. Uh, and and the rising house prices, they were going into the gamble, falling house prices, they've disappeared. And at the same time, Z is trying to stop people spiriting money out of the country um, you know, and, and putting their assets elsewhere and putting in extremely strong restrictions, which when, when the Chinese enforce a restriction, you don't want to be on the receiving end of it. Yeah. So all that means that the... Another source of demand, keeping house prices high and out of the reach of young buyers, has also disappeared. So uh, I think the house prices have got a lot further to go. Yeah. All right. Whether they'll get back to a, a point at which young people can afford to buy again is another question because they have moved so far, so far. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, but also, I mean, and, and I do sound like an old time here. Maybe they just have to get, also, there's an element of getting used to actually what your first home should be like. And uh, it's probably not as big as you imagine. Uh, you know, mine certainly wasn't that large. Uh, people's expectations have perhaps risen to levels that are uh, unrealistic, too. Partially, but I think also I mean, at the same time, this this uh, there's the development of, of supply shortage. That's the explanation. Let's build more houses. Yeah. Argument has seen the building of shoeboxes, uh, you know, the, and, and badly built shoeboxes and shoeboxes that are insulated by flammable cladding material on places you pay for rather than living in housing uh, estates, and as is the case in Grenfell in the UK. So um, you mm-hmm. know, there's, 
uh, and, and dodgy supply. There's actually, with a company, I've forgotten the company's name, but one company built a, a luxury apartment block in um, uh, the Olympic Park in Australia, and three months after they moved in, the building started to fall over. Yeah. You so, know? yeah, so, so it's bad architecture and bad design and uh, aesthetics that we seem to forget in, in, in when we're looking at numbers. So it's interesting, hmm. isn't it, that uh, maybe there's a point to finish on if you look at London, because it is a good example. Uh, it's, it's actually not that densely a populated city. For example, Paris is much more densely populated uh, than London is. And the reason is because Paris is largely apartment living. But apartment living in Paris, uh, you know, those uh, four or five storey buildings, which are aesthetically very pleasing, uh, which line wide roads with trams or whatever down down the middle of them, um, they are, you know, they're, they're, they're housing the vast majority of the Paris population. And those apartments are quite large. Uh, they're sort of like mid-rise buildings that cover so much of the city, but mm. you, but they are you know that that's what makes Paris, and they look attractive rather than a nineteen sixties high rise which eventually burns down. Um, and Paris is making some mistakes now by letting a housing bubble continue there to some extent. But yeah, in terms of livability, it's a far more livable city than Sydney uh, than, I, than London. Yeah, yeah, so higher density housing that actually is aesthetically pleasing could be the answer in in lots of places. Could be the answer in Sydney as well if you had better architects. Uh, but anyway, we'll leave it there. Uh, good to talk, okay. Steve. We'll catch you again very soon. Okay, mate. Bye. Okay. Uh, not sure what we're going to talk about next time. I'm sure we'll find something. That is it for today, the Deep Banking Economics Podcast. I'm Phil Dobby. I'll be back with Steve Keen again very soon. Thanks for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy the Y-Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search the Y-Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.